All right. It's, uh, it's good to be back together again this morning. Good to be with all of you. I'm always excited to be able to have that opportunity. And uh, it's exciting to be drawing kind of nearer and nearer to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, the, otherwise known as the Old Testament. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm undecided. I need to pray about it just a little bit. But I, I'm, if you've been kind of monitoring the, the reading schedule, you know that this week we're going to be in First and Second Chronicles for the most part with one day in Matthew. And I'm seriously, seriously considering just jumping straight from today into Matthew. Uh, and you're going to see why a little bit. Uh, it's not that we shouldn't read First and Second Chronicles. Absolutely. Spend your week doing that if you're, if you're reading with us, um, because it's a great recap of everything that we've been covering these last 30 plus weeks in the Hebrew Scriptures. But going from what we're talking about this morning in Malachi to Matthew, man, it just makes so much sense if you know anything about Malachi. And so uh, I, I, I hope you'll see why this makes sense as we wrap up today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time or you're new, especially if you're joining us online, there are a few things I want to make you aware of for some context. Uh, number one, we are in the midst of a 50-week year-long series that we're calling Read Scripture in 2021. And ideally, as I just alluded to a moment ago, we're all reading a little each day, a little each day, 10, 15 minutes a day. And by the end of that week, we come together and we hear a message based on everything we've been reading. So it's two or three different touch points or, or, or opportunities to learn the same text in a given week. And it's, it's been a great journey thus far. I, I've really, really enjoyed it. I love hearing feedback from people as they leave going, man, I read that this week and now it makes sense. Or yes, like that's, that's really helping that, that kind of take root in my heart a little bit. So for those of you who are doing that, I love the testimonies. I love what you're doing. Keep it up. Janet, Barbara, you guys are the ones who are always in my ear telling me good things. So I, I love that. Um, also, if for whatever reason you've kind of gotten away from the reading schedule, it's a great time to start because, as I alluded to, this week we start the New Testament toward the end of the week. So jump back in with us. Let, let's, let's do this together as we go through the New Testament. Also, second, some very, very important things that could be said are not going to be said today simply in the interest of time because shorter services make for a less risky environment for all of us sitting in a room together right now. And third is that, that we're going to be in the book of Malachi, which is the very last book in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures before Matthew. So I, I do invite you to open your Bibles there as we go to God in prayer, and uh, we will get started this morning. Uh, often I, I give you the opportunity to kind of assume whatever physical posture you want before the Lord, but today I just want to ask everyone to stand. If you're able-bodied, would you stand as we pray Let's start off on the right foot, ask the Holy Spirit to be present and powerful in this place. Let's talk to him. Most righteous and heavenly Father, you have blessed us more than we could ever possibly understand or imagine. I believe that, and I know that, even though there's so much that you do for me and for us that I never see that I never appreciate, that I never say thank you for, or that, that I delude myself into thinking I had something to do with. Father, in this time, as we gather in this place, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that you would speak through your word and Malachi and, and so many others that we're going to be touching on today. And Lord, I pray that your word would, would find a way to penetrate our hearts and our minds 
to do something to stir us, to stir a passion for you, a love for you, a, a real sense of, of we belong to you. That's my prayer this morning, and I pray that you would bless this time together. Help us to get rid of those thoughts that, that distract us uh, like we always do. I know we have laundry. Father, help us to focus on your word today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. I don't know if you uh, ever played much sports growing up. I, I liked to do that most days on the playground. Uh, and if you've ever witnessed like a pickup game of, of basketball or football or kickball or something along those lines, there's kind of this common practice that seems to happen at the beginning of pretty much every game that's played probably around the world, um, where usually two people are named as captains. And then each of those captains kind of take turns in this draft system, drafting players that they want to be on their team until... Everybody's been picked, and two teams have been formed. And it, it's this, this great, simple, little system. It, it just works super well, and it stood the test of time. And almost everyone uses it. And I say almost because I, I think I grew up at the one school that didn't. I grew up at a school <laughs> where whoever brought the ball seemed to be the, the person in charge, the, the king, if you will. And so this royal bringer of ball was ch would... would, would systematically choose half of the people that he wanted to be on his team and everybody else that he didn't want was on the other team. And the only problem with that, as you may have guessed, was that 100% of the time that meant there was one really, really good team and there was one really, really bad team. And if you ever needed a really good reminder as like a 10-year-old or 11-year-old or whatever you might be uh, of just how good you were or where you stood as an athlete among your peers, man, this was the perfect system for that. It would humble you in a heartbeat. You knew exactly where you stood, depending on which team you landed on. And when, I came, when it came to things like basketball or football or soccer, I was reminded each and every day exactly where I belonged. And so, as you might be able to tell, that, that is burned into my memory of what that felt like, being excluded, being, being the guy left behind. There was this, this distinction that was being made. And it was a distinction between the kids that were desirable and the kids that were not desirable, the kids who were skilled or athletic and the kids who were not skilled or athletic, the kids who were good and not good. But what's interesting about that memory for me is that while it may have been an unusual way to, to play a pickup game, it's not that unusual throughout history. In fact, some people in this room have lived through and experienced some much, much more painful distinctions being made in their lives. Are you rich or are you poor? I'm not pointing at anybody, by the way. <laughs> are you black or are you white? Are you, are you fat or are you fit? And here most recently, there's even been a push to do the same with regard to vaccines. Are you vaccinated or are you not vaccinated? And usually we don't like those distinctions being made because distinctions can be very, very painful. Uh, you think about the beginning of our country and the kind of language that we use. We said things like, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That what? Help me out. That all men are created equal. And if we're honest, we would admit that we haven't done a very good job of always living up to those words. But even 200 and some odd years ago, we said, this is self-evident. 
This is obvious. We're, we all kind of recognize that we're, we're supposed to be in the same boat, so to speak. But my question this morning is, are there ever times when distinctions are appropriate? Are there ever times when distinctions are necessary? And I think the answer to that is, is yes. Absolutely, without a doubt. Case in point, I am so glad that when I get in my car each day and I drive down the road, that I am not driving alongside 10-year-olds who are also driving in the car. That's a distinction I embrace. Amen? I am so glad that when my daughter turns 18, she will not have to register for the draft. That's a distinction I embrace. And I am so glad that most convicted murderers and, and criminals often end up behind fences and walls and bars and so on, and they're cut off from their ability to harm people I love, like you and, and me. That's a distinction I embrace. And so some distinctions are appropriate. Some distinctions are necessary. And I say all of that because of how important that reality is to the book of Malachi. Malachi is notable among all the prophets in Scripture in that it is not only the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, or the last book of the Old Testament, but it's also the latest. In other words, it's the newest Old Testament book. Malachi the man is a post exile prophet, or post-exilic, if you want to use a fancy word, uh, along with a few others, like, like Haggai and Zechariah and, and perhaps Joel. And so what he has to say, or what God has to say through the prophet Malachi, kind of comes with that repair and rebuild of Jerusalem and the second temple very much in the background of his writings. And so the structure of Malachi that we're going to be talking about today kind of consists of three stages. There's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a promise. A problem, a solution, and a promise. So what is the problem? Well, Malachi begins to unveil the problem in, in something of a dialogue between God and the people. And I might even go so far as to call this a monologue, like God is the only one talking. Where God, God is sort of conversing with himself. And so on one hand, he'll, he'll make a comment about the people of Judah or Israel. And almost in the very next breath, He'll assume their response. Uh, and so you notice we, we kind of do this sometimes in our own conversations, or sometimes I'll do this even in a sermon. And so verse 2 of Malachi, right off the bat, is a great example of what I'm talking about. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how? How have you loved us? So God makes a statement and then kind of anticipates their response based on what he knows. And what is it that he knows? He knows their heart. He says, you ask, how have you loved us? And so for the next three chapters of Malachi, he's going to do this about eight different times. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Here's, here's what I see, here's what you'd say. Here's what I see, here's what you'd say. And so the people ask God, well, I should say this, that those questions, those eight kind of stages are all part of a progression. And, and rather than go through each of those one by one, I think this first one kind of shapes up to give us the overall theme and structure and intent of where we're going. So the people ask God, you say you love us, God, but how? How? How do you love us? And so God responds to their question by going all the way back to the very beginning of their family story. Now, remember, who is Israel? Who is Israel? 
Well, Israel, the man, as you may recall, was renamed from who? Say that for me. I, masks can't hear you. Jacob. Say Jacob, church. Israel was renamed from Jacob. Israel, the people, are his descendants. And so as God is talking to the Israelites, to Jacob's descendants, he says kind of rhetorically, like, how have I loved you? Well, go back to the very beginning of your family tree, and what do you see? And he basically says, you're going to see with your own eyes that between Jacob and his brother Esau, I favored who? Jacob. And between Jacob's descendants, which is you all, not you all, but, but the people he, Malachi's talking to, and between the descendants of, of Esau, which is the nation of Edom, I favored who? Say Israel. And so Edom never amounted to anything compared to what God had done for Israel. In other words, right off the bat, God says, I made a distinction between you and them, between you and everybody else on the earth. And if you're new to Lake Merced, or you're new to this series, you're kind of missing out on the context of, of 30 weeks of material that got us to where we are now. And so this might sound a little bit strange, and it, and it kind of is without that context. But here's what God was saying to Jacob's descendants way, 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 way back then. Help me out with this. He said, all nations on earth will be blessed. How? Through who? He said, through you. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, the distinction that God was making between himself or between his people, Israel, and everyone else was not one of love. It was not one of worth. It was not one of value. It was a distinction being made with regard to purpose. In other words, Israel was purposed by God way back when to be that dispenser of God's love, to be that dispenser of God's blessing to everyone else in all the same ways that God uses each of us to bless one another. And so uh, it might be that, that I might fill your gas tank or I might buy you tires or you might do something else for me. And it's not because God loves me more than he loves you and therefore he's given me the funds to do that. It's because he loves us all equally and he's using me as a vessel to be able to bless everybody else. Do we understand that? We all follow with that. And so the question is, how have I loved you? And his answer is, is in different words, is I, I made a distinction between you and everyone else. Did you forget that? In other words, did you forget how I delivered my people from, from famine by sending you to Egypt and prospering you? Did you forget how when you were enslaved in Egypt, I raised up Moses to deliver you? Did you forget how I brought you into this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey? Did you forget how when you went to exile for not really doing things my way, I brought you back? Did you forget all of these things that I've done for you since the very beginning? And it's such a bratty question what they're asking. You, you kind of have been there before. Like, it's like the child who's stone cold, looks their parents in the eyes and says, you've never done anything for me, nothing. And the scary part is, is they actually believe it. They think they know that their mom and dad has not done anything for them. Meanwhile, mom's going like, you have no idea. There is so much that goes on behind the scenes that you will never know, that you'll never appreciate to say that I never did anything for you. I don't know about you. Anyone ever seen a child act like that? 
Maybe you've seen a child act like that. Maybe you've been that child at some point in your life, or maybe you had that child as a parent, but I think everyone has seen some child act like that. The reality is that we often say and do similar kinds of things with regard to God. We say things to God like, God, God has never done anything for me. And we actually believe that. We actually mean that. But the response is like, like really? Nothing? God has never done anything for you. Like the mere fact that you're here to be able to even ask that question should be proof enough that you're not really in the right ballpark here. But as Malachi continues, God begins to build little by little on this initial statement of, I have loved you. And it, it kind of carries with it the sense of like, I, I've set you apart. I've made you holy. I've made a distinction between you and everybody else. And so the implication in what God is saying is, but you, you have not loved me. And so if I sum up this dialogue in a few words, it kind of goes like this. Or God says, you know, you show contempt for my name and you defile the altar of my sacrifice. And they say, well, how do we do that? And so he says, well, look at the kind of offerings that you're bringing me. You don't bring your best. You bring me your diseased animals, your blind animals, your crippled animals. Like try bringing that garbage to the government and see what they have to say. Next, he looks at the priests. The priests, as you might remember, were the Levites, the descendants from Levi, the man. And God says, look at what kind of relationship Levi and I had with one another. Like Levi had reverence for me. He revered me. He was all about my name. He stood in awe of my name. Those priests that work with Levi, he said they brought knowledge and instruction about me to all the people. But look at the Levites now. He says, now you guys have turned away from all of that. And your teaching is actually causing people to stumble. He says, you profane the covenant that I had with Levi. They say, well, how did we do that? He says, you can't even keep your promises to one another, let alone me. He says, you're going around, you're marrying husbands and wives who belong to false gods. And then, and then when you're trying to fix that error, you think you're doing something right by going and, and divorcing the wife of your youth. He says, no, I, I hate divorce. I hate broken commitments. That stuff is not of me. He just says, you, you've wearied me with your words. You've wearied me. And they say, well, how have we done that? He says, you, you weary me by going around saying that everybody does good. Even the people who do evil, he says, you, you call good. Right or wrong, good or evil, you just, you just go around saying it's all good in God's eyes. You do you. So he says, where is the God of justice? That's not who I am. I'm not the God who goes around calling evil things good. And so for two chapters, this is what God does. He lays out his complaint. He lays out the problem that is before God's people. And the problem is... I have loved you, but you have not loved me. And so chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi shifts gears from the problem to the solution. The fact that Malachi expresses that there's a problem between God and the people is not unique. Most prophets that we've been reading here in the last couple of months have been saying similar kinds of things with different words. But what sets Malachi apart is what comes next. 
So just a reminder, chapter 2 ends with these words. It's the last, it's the last verse of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. In other words, he's like, you've, you've muddied the waters between man's ways and my way. They appear indistinguishable from one another because, kind of like Isaiah chapter 5 said, you call evil good and good evil. And that's a problem. So the very next verse, here's what God's going to do to solve that problem. And it's twofold. I'm reading from the ESV here because I think it's a better translation. Malachi 3.1. He says, Behold, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you know the Hebrew scriptures particularly well, this is not the first time you've seen this language before. In fact, word for word in the Hebrew, it's almost the exact same language that we get when Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai and he's talking to God and God is preparing them for a journey through the wilderness to the promised land. And there in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, God says this. He says, See, I am sending an angel, a messenger ahead of you to guard you along the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. This is no coincidence. Both of these statements carry the same purpose. And that purpose is to tell of a predecessor. Say predecessor. It's to tell of a predecessor before the realized promise comes. In other words, Malachi is not just foretelling of one significant person who is to come, but two. Everyone say two. Two. The first is a messenger who is to prepare the way before the Lord. And the second is a second messenger described as the Lord, who suddenly comes, when the first messenger comes, to his temple and brings a new covenant, a new promise that brings the people delight. So, two people. One prepares the way for the other. The other brings a new covenant, which is exactly what Isaiah said, and what Jeremiah said, and what Ezekiel said, that there would be a new and everlasting covenant on the horizon. And so before we get into the who, in other words, who is Malachi talking about? I want to try to read the rest of Malachi through the lens that Malachi's readers would have read it through, which is to say, let's keep going. Verse 2, it says, but who can endure the day? Of his coming. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. He says in verse 5, So I will come to put you on trial 
And I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And so what Malachi is beginning to describe is not just a receiving of a new covenant, but the implications of what that new covenant brings with it. And so when you talk about a refiner's fire, and you talk about launderer's soap, and so on, you realize that what Malachi is doing is he's beginning to describe a separation of things. To borrow a word we used earlier today, he's, he's beginning to, to demonstrate that there will be a distinction made. And that distinction will begin to undo and unravel all of the muddied waters of people who call evil good and good evil. But those who bring God garbage offerings, who defraud and who oppress and who deprive and who commit injustice, he says, those people will be refined. They will be separated. They will be made distinct from those who don't. And as God begins to reveal this, this hopeful and sobering future to the people, he offers them a message of opportunity. It's a, it's a second chance, if you will. God says, return to me, and I will return to you. In other words, it doesn't have to be this way. It does not have to be this way. I'm still in your corner. I have loved you. I still love you. And if you come back and love me the way I love you, I will bless your socks off. That's what God's getting ready to say. In fact, he says, test me on this. Test me. Verse 10, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it all. Just don't fake it. If you bring me trash, I will separate you like trash. And as chapter 3 concludes, verse 16 and following moves now from solution to promise. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God's promise to the people, his people, is a promise of compassion. But it's not compassion for everyone. It's compassion for those who listened. Compassion for those who heard. Compassion for those who cared. For those who loved. It's like the advice you might have gotten from your parents, or maybe you've given to your kids as a parent, that if you do what's right, what? you have nothing to worry about. How many of you have heard things like that said before? If you do what's right, you have nothing to worry about. Well, God's message is similar. If you draw near to me, 
I will draw near to you. If you love me, I will love you. But the underlying tension is also a sobering cliffhanger. If you don't, if you don't, there is a day coming when I will separate you and remove you. As I see it, Malachi builds on last week's message. We talked about renewal last week. And I think we can summarize Malachi this way. That those who seek God find renewal. But those who don't are self-seeking. And what they find in Malachi is removal. And so as Malachi draws to a close, he says something totally unexpected, totally bizarre. He says in verse 5 of chapter 4, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. (laughs) And that's where he leaves it. That's the end of Malachi, those words. And for 400 years, that's all there is. This promise that Elijah, the, that, that one who never died, you remember him? He was just kind of swept up to heaven in a whirlwind. Like, he's coming back at some point. And then it's crickets. Silence. For a very, very long time. And so you ask, ask yourself, what, what does all this have to do with Malachi? What do we make of Malachi? Who is the messenger who prepares the way for the Lord? Who is the messenger who brings the new covenant? Why is Elijah coming back? Scarily, when is Elijah coming back? And when is this dreadful day of the Lord? So many questions. And for 400 years, silence. But like a cicada, if you guys know what a cicada is, they're not really around here, but some of you who've lived elsewhere know what they are. 17 years a cicada lives underground, and then it randomly just comes up and surfaces one day, and it's there. Just like a cicada, the silence from God does eventually end. And all four gospel writers begin to write about the coming of a man. Mark's gospel in particular writes about it immediately. And Mark is generally believed to be the earliest of the four gospels. This is how Mark's gospel begins. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Verse 7, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Yes, I baptize you with water, but he will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit of God. We have roughly 20 more weeks 
to be able to dig a whole lot more into what all this means and who John the Baptist is and why he's so significant in God's redemption plan. But the message that he's bringing is a message that very much aligns with what Malachi has to say. And it's a message that says that those who seek God find renewal and those who seek self find removal. From John's perspective, renewal comes through baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sin. But it comes with urgency. And it's the same urgency that we get in Malachi because looming at some point in the future is, is this nearness of the kingdom of heaven, this, this great and dreadful day of the Lord, as Malachi calls it, that, that, that time when God will make a distinction between those who are righteous and those who are not, those who love him and those who don't, those who know him and those who don't. What Jesus will later reveal to his disciples in Matthew chapter 17 that nobody, I think, could have seen coming is that this John the Baptist character, he is the Elijah who was to come. He's not Elijah himself, but he is the Elijah figure that Malachi spoke about. And if that seems strange to you, just know you're arguing with Jesus. These are Jesus' words himself, literally, in Matthew chapter 17. This comes straight from his mouth. And I have to stop myself there in the interest of time. Because this is literally the, the, the hub of Scripture. If you picture like a wheel with a hub and all these spokes where everything's sort of connected in the middle, this is the hub. Meaning nearly everything that we read connects in some way to this point, to this bridge between Malachi and the Gospels. And there, there are endless, endless rabbit trails and footnotes and things that we could pursue to better explain what we're talking about here. We have the next 20 weeks to be able to do that. But this morning, I want to come back to Malachi. And I want to finish up here because I think Malachi says some really, really important and really, really timely things specifically to us as God's people, as Christians today. Because what were those behaviors that, that, that God was addressing, that God was talking about in the book of Malachi to begin with? What was it that he took issue with that he saw in the hearts of the people? What were the things that made him say, I'm going to make a distinction between those who are righteous and those who are wicked? When you go back and you look and you kind of skim Malachi, you see God saying like, hey, when I looked at their giving, these were people who didn't give their first and their best. They gave their last and their worst. When he looked at their teaching, they didn't revere God. They didn't preserve knowledge or follow his ways. Instead, they were teaching things that were causing other people to stumble. When he looked at their promises and their covenants, he said, you guys aren't keeping them. When he looked at their relationships, they were marrying people with no regard for him whatsoever. When he looked at their morals, they were in the habit of calling anything and everything good. In short, they were what James or what the, the psalmist might call double-minded people. And when I look at the state of Christendom to this day, and much of that includes looking even at the state of, of my own heart, man, I can't help but see me and see us and see the, the church throughout the world in general. Do I give God my first? Do I give God my best? 
Do I give sacrificially to the church so that those who truly need help, if someone came here right now and had a significant need for help, would we be able to meet that need? Do I do that? Do you? Or do I bring a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all that God has blessed me with just so I can check a box and pat myself on the back and say, boy." My question is why, church, are we so resistant to trusting God enough to be willing to give it all away? What is it that makes us want to hold on to everything? Do we, do we believe that God would meet our needs? Do I believe that God would meet my needs? Do I truly trust in God's daily bread that no matter what happens day by day, God's going to have my back and I'm going to have everything I need? Do I really believe that? I know what the Bible says, but do I really, truly believe that? Because that was the question that was on my heart this week. Man, Malachi is, is sobering. It's, it's encouraging, but it's sobering. It's not to be trifled with. And so questions like these matter. Like if, if I'm not willing to give up something like my money, what does that say about how much I trust him? How much I really believe what he's saying? If I'm dating someone and that person is pulling me away from Jesus, Maybe that's in sexual sin. Maybe that's in spiritual complacency. What does that say about how much I love him, that I will hang on to that relationship at the expense of my relationship with Jesus? If I'm spending my time normalizing all of this sin that's in my life to the point where I'm calling bad or, or questionable behaviors, like no big deal. What does it say about the, the fear and reverence that I have for God in my life? Questions like these should make us ask, do, do I really believe what I read? Like really, not just know it, but do I really believe it? Do I really trust what God's word says? I know if, if I asked if you wanted to, every hand in this room would go up. We would all say that we want to. But, what, but, but if what we give God is, is the equivalent of the, the crippled, leftover, diseased, blind, broken parts of our blessings— while we hold on to all the best, I'm not sure that we get it. In Malachi, God looks at all those people and says, you are robbing me. You're robbing me. And so he begs us. He says, bring it all. Bring your whole self. Bring your, bring your whole tithe. Bring your whole heart. And then test me. Test me and see that, that I will... Not, See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room to store it all. On the surface, I know this sounds like prosperity gospel stuff. I promise you, it's not. I'm not asking us to sow a seed and receive more money. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying check your heart. Check your heart. What are you giving to God? Does he get your time? Does he get your reverence? Does he get your money? Does he get your stuff? Would you, with, with the home that you're blessed with, would you open your doors to somebody in need who needed a place to live? Would you do that? Or would you hold most of it back for yourself? Church, I think until we take these things to heart, until we're willing to take those crowns off our head and lay them at the feet of Jesus on the cross, we can't be the church that God has called us to truly be because we're not fully living that out. Because the church 
that, that Jesus envisioned was a church that dies to self and puts their trust fully in the promises of God. And so this week, church, I was convicted because I know up here what the promises of God are. But if I'm not living that way, do I really believe? Do I really trust in those promises? Am I seeking him or am I seeking, in some sense, myself? And so as you ask that question, Malachi hits us where it hurts. That those who seek God find renewal. But those who in some way seek self find removal. Church, there is a day coming when God will make a distinction between those who knew him, those who trusted him, those who believed him, and those who didn't. And when the day of refining comes, I don't want to be that impurity that gets removed. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I don't want to just say that I trust God. I want to know that if I lost every single thing I owned, and if I got my phone out and I checked my bank account balance and it said I had zero dollars in the bank, that I would still rejoice in what Christ has done for me because I don't live this life for now. I don't live this life for me. I live this life for eternity and for Christ. And so this morning, I want to ask you, encourage you even, to, to search your heart. Who do you really think you are? Are you the person who loves God, who fears God, who trusts God and honors his name with everything you do? Or are you the person who, in, in some sense or another, makes sure that yourself is number one on that list of priorities in your life? Who honors self, who seeks self, who loves self? Malachi says God makes a distinction. So, when God picks teams, which team are you on? Which team do you want to be on? And so the solution and promise of Malachi rests solely on the shoulders of the Messiah, of the Christ, who brings an everlasting covenant that says, whoever trusts in me. I know the text says believe, but sometimes we conflate believing with trusting. The Bible says even the demons believe God and shudder, believe in God. No, do you believe God? Do you trust God? Do you trust in him? Because whosoever trusts in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe that promise, church? That's not rhetorical. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that promise, church? If where you're sitting today, you said to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I, I have, but I'm ready to. I'm ready to be on God's team. I want to invite you this morning to receive something very similar to what John the Baptist was talking about, which is baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sin. Only in this case, the promise is that you receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit living in your life. And so as we stand right now and as we sing a song to close, if you are ready to receive Christ in baptism, I want to invite you to that. I'll be sitting up here in the front row with the reminder and the, the, the memory that those who seek God find renewal.
Those who seek self find removal. Let's stand. Let's sing praise to the Lord.